0: Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the the wake of the coronavirus lockdowns, there were a series of wave memes were published uh, in the newspapers. There's a whole series of them, some with just two waves, others with lots of waves. Uh, Here's one of them uh, on the screen. Now, don't worry, I'm not about to make a political point about the significance or seriousness of COVID. That's not my point at all. Rather, I want to just point to the bigger idea here. Really the big idea here is that small dangers can so captivate our imagination that we neglect to think of the bigger danger which is coming over the top of it, right? You see that in the picture, and that's the idea. You can put whatever labels uh, you want on those. The big mistake in life is to be so distracted by little things that we miss the bigger thing coming over the top. Now I want to suggest to us that it would be easy for us to make that uh, mistake this morning. As we sit here and listen and if you can believe this, this goes on in my mind even as I speak as well. Our minds can be full of all sorts of different things. Distracting little dangers if you like. Maybe you're sitting here, you're thinking about the trouble of the week. Maybe you're thinking about your need for a new job. You're hunting for a job. Maybe there's trouble in your friendship group at school. Maybe you've Applied for a new school place. Perhaps you're concerned about the health of a parent. Maybe you've got trouble paying your bills. The, the truth is, as we, as we sit here this morning, there's a, there's a hundred different things on our minds, aren't there? Lots of different distractions, troubles that we, we sort of can't shake. And I know that in these moments, which might be the only moment this weekend that you've actually sat down and engaged your brain to think because you've been so busy. In these moments, those little distractions can stop us thinking about the bigger danger that's coming over the top. And so Paul has spent three chapters, if you like, warning us that behind the small things in our life stands this grave danger of the impending judgment of God. Paul has been telling us this is the real danger for us all, that we live our lives in the face of all the little troubles that we face. We live our lives under this impending judgment of God. We live in a world where it makes no difference whether you're religious or irreligious, whether you're relatively good or bad, whether you're rich or poor. We still face the tsunami of the justice of God. Moral recompense for every deed by every person weighed in the divine balance of justice. It's so comprehensive and so huge. It's It's almost impossible to get our minds around the scale of it. So we distract ourselves, don't we, with the little troubles in our lives, worrying whether we'll get that uni place or whether we'll get married or whether our pension will cover our bills. But Paul says, no, listen, just put those to one side for a moment and look up and ask the bigger question. Ask yourself, in your life, have you reckoned with the fact that your life is lived in a world where God is judge?" where you are owned and made by a God to whom one day you will give an account. Now, I, I know this morning that in a really important sense, there's nothing that I can say here that will persuade you that that is true. By nature, we're so hardwired to reject that, that no words of mine can unpick that. We're reliant, aren't we, this morning on the, the work of the Spirit to persuade us that that is true. Which means this morning, if you are persuaded that that's true, then you can be sure he's at work. And if he's at work in your heart, then these first two words of our reading that Alison read for us will have made your heart dance as you listen to them. As Paul says, having talked about this impending coming judgment of God, he says, but now, but now. These are like the the spiritual equivalent of, of hearing your parents' voice when you're lost in the shopping center. You ever been lost in a shopping center? And then you hear your parents call out your name from a distance and you're like, oh, I'm not lost. Or turning up to double maths at school to find the teachers off and the lessons cancelled. Amazing. These words, but now, mean that in the face of this impending judgment of God, the wrath of God, that we see in the chaos of our world, in the hell that we live in and that we face, there is something else to see. There's something else to listen to. There's another truth being revealed, and that's what he's going to go on and explain. Uh, People have said that these sort of five or six verses that we're going to look at together this morning are some of the most important ever written, that they're the most important words in all the Bible. They've certainly got a point, because I think the truth is unless you understand what is going on in these verses this morning, you do not know what it is to be a Christian. Let me say that again. If you do not understand what's going on in these verses, you do not know what it is to be a Christian. Parents, if your children do not grow to understand the truths of this passage, and you might look at it and think, wow, this is way beyond their grasp. Well, listen, if you don't commit yourself to teaching them the truths of these verses, you will not be fulfilling your responsibilities as a Christian parent because this is the heart of the gospel. If you're a Christian this morning, if you stop appreciating the significance of these verses or if we neglect the truths of them, then our Christian lives will be joyless and miserable and we might not even be Christians at all. So because of that, because of the seriousness of this, we're going to spend two weeks on these verses. And I suggest that you spend some time reading them in between, maybe trying to memorize them, write them out perhaps. Maybe pause after each little word and and think about what does that mean, what significance is that for me? Because although we're spending two weeks on these verses, we haven't got enough time to say everything that needs to be said about them. This week, my plan is just to start with a simple summary sentence of all of these words. And we're going to unpack it together. And then in a couple of weeks' time, because next week, I'm preaching at Bridge Chapel and Ollie Hallett is preaching here. But the week after that, I'm going to pick up the theme of uh, Romans 3. And we're going to look at the implication of it for us. So here's our simple summary. Maybe, just to persuade me that you are listening this morning, you can read it with me as well, okay? So it's God saves freely in Christ all who have faith in him. Okay, let's read it together. God saves freely in Christ all who have faith in him. Okay, so when it appears on the screen, you can read it aloud. And then I will know whether you're listening or not. God saves. That's the first part. God saves. This is so, so important as we start off. The but now at the beginning of our passage in verse 21 is not because of any action that you have taken or I have taken. Paul is not about to say, you know, but now there are some people in the world for whom this impending tsunami of the judgment of God is not really a thing. It's not really an issue for them. There are a group of people who are really nice and really good and don't deserve God's judgment. Of course he's not going to say that. He's strained over and over for three chapters to tell you that's not true. This but now is, but now God has acted. How so? Well, he says, the righteousness of God has been revealed. Righteousness, not so much as in the, the right character of God, although, of course, that is true, isn't it? God is righteous in that sense. Rather, here is the, the give awayable rightness of God has been revealed. Rightness, righteousness that can cover over a sinner and keep them safe in judgment. More of that in a moment. The first point to be clear on is not so much how that works, but that it is that, that is working. That the change is not because of our action, but because of God's action. Now, when you think about it, it makes total sense, doesn't it? Not just because of our weakness and our inadequacy. This starts with God's actions, not just because we are too weak and too inadequate to act. That's, That's not enough. The point is that God needs to act because our weakness and our inadequacy is anti-God. Do you understand? <laughs> so in verse 23, our problem is that we have fallen short of the glory of God. We have not made the mark for which we were made. In other words, our problem with this impending tsunami of God's judgment is not, "Oh, I've done a few things wrong. I told the odd lie. I cheated in the odd exam. I, I drove my car too fast on the road. No, that's not the problem, is it? Instead, the problem is that we've done all of those things as a symptom of the fact that in our hearts we were made for the glory of God and we've lived for the glory of me. We've lived our lives for ourselves, claimed our own successes, lived life as if it came from ourselves. So our problem is not just that we're too weak to act, although of course we are. The problem is that we have absolutely no inclination to act at all. So much so that even our religious activity is more often than not designed to lever God's favor, to make him owe us in a deeply self-centered, even sinful way at times. Now, it's important that we get this right. Let's notice that we are talking about the triune God here, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that the but now is firstly the God the Father, planning and initiating and resourcing and acting through God the Son in the power of the Spirit that we might be saved by him and for him. Salvation is but God stepping in so that through the Son, by the Spirit, we might come to the Father. And so God acts and he acts outside of us, in himself, by himself, for himself, to save us. Let me just try and show you that. Look at verses 23 and 24. Look down at the passage Notice, we have sinned. Okay, that is past tense. All have sinned. That doesn't mean that we don't go on sinning. I know we know that, don't we? We know we go on doing things wrong. The point is not that sin has stopped, but that sin is complete. Sin has been sufficiently done to be under God's judgment. We have all sinned, past tense, and fall short, present tense. We are complete sinners, missing the mark of the glory that we were made for. That is what has happened and who we now are. And then notice verse 24. And are justified. That is, declared not guilty, declared righteous, declared to be in the right. There's no and there in the Greek. Instead, this is just straight in, straight in with justification. This is complete sinners, glory short sinners being given at the same time as they are guilty. A verdict of righteousness. In other words, we'll come on and see how God does this in a moment. We'll bear with me on that. But notice what God has done. What God has done is that he has taken people like you and I, people who are sinners, and without any change in them, has declared them to be righteous. He doesn't first morally transform people so that they are capable of being righteous. Salvation is not God taking you and turning you into someone who deserves salvation. That's not what's happening here. He's not making you capable of sufficient good behavior to cover over the wrong things you've done. He's not coming alongside people to help them be the best version of who they can be. No, instead, by an action all of his own, independent of them, in the triune Father, Son, and Spirit, he has done something which enables him to declare you, at the same time as being a sinner, righteous. Righteous. God has acted externally to us to save us. Think about it like this. Imagine for a moment that you're caught speeding on Egbeth Road. Some of you will not have to make your imaginations run too wild to imagine this, will you? You've done 50 miles an hour through the lights at Barkhill Hill Road, and you are demanded in court to give an account of yourselves, for your judgment day is looming. The day of reckoning for your careless driving. But in the week before your court appearance, a letter arrives in the post. It's from the judge herself. She's written to you. And it says in the letter, This letter is a declaration to you of the verdict that you will receive when you stand in my court on the judgment day for your speeding offense on Egbeth Road. So You're reading it with some trepidation. I know I was speeding. I know I was doing it. And you look down, and what does it say? The verdict on that day will be not guilty. Not guilty. And they say, listen, please bring with you this letter on that day as proof. But you can have it now, but you can bring it with you on that day as proof that you are not guilty, that you have already the verdict of that judgment day in your hand now. Now, again, don't worry. We'll see in a moment how God has done that. But notice that that is what God has done for you and me this morning the but now is an action of God himself justifying declaring not guilty sinners like you and I so that today on this day we might have in our hands in our justification the verdict of judgment day this is the key to confidence and joy in the Christian life sitting here this morning how do you know that you are saved How do you know that on this day when this impending tsunami of God's judgment comes, how do you know that you'll be okay? How do you know? Well, listen, don't go digging in your own heart. Don't go looking at what you're doing. Look to the action of God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit, justifying sinners like you and I, so that we can know today that God has saved us because of what he has done. Remarkable truth. Anyway, we need to keep moving because our summary sentence is nine words long. I think, well, no, wait, 11 words long. We've done two. So here you go. God, God saves freely in Christ all who have faith in him. Freely in Christ. This really is the answer to the question, how? How does God save like that? Answer, freely in Christ. Freely in Christ. But how does that work? How can God declare someone who is completely sinful to be not guilty you know how can god do is that is this some sort of bizarre legal fiction you know uh, uh, we know i'm not going to ask you to put your hands up but uh, do your parents ever threaten punishments that they are they have no intention of ever carrying through Do, do you ever get that listen if you carry on behaving like this you will not receive a single christmas present but no parent is brave enough to carry that out are they right parents do that don't they I wonder whether we think that God is like that. There's an impending judgment on every sin by every person. He'll never do that, will he? He'll never do that. You know, Some people are banking their eternal well-being on that. But they're wrong. God is not like that kind of parent. He's not too weak to judge. The last three chapters have all been persuading us that God is holy. And his holiness is thorough and far-reaching. His judgment, remember, do you remember the word that is used to describe God's judgment in these passages? Right. (laughs) Truly. A true judgment. There are no, you know, go on then, I'll let you off. There's none of that. Instead, God saves, not by turning a blind eye to justice, but he saves his people freely in Christ. So look down at verse 24 again. Justified, that is declared right, righteous, saved, by his grace as a gift. Literally, freely, without cost or without charge. Freely saved, what, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The word redemption here is the legally demanded price to pay for the freedom of a slave, to to buy them out of slavery. And Paul says, listen, in Jesus Christ, there is moral capital, righteous cash, if you like, to pay for the justification of sinners. How so? How can Jesus have that kind of moral capital? Look down at verse 25. Because God put him forward or presented Jesus as a propitiation by his blood. Now, I grant you, propitiation is a big word, but it's a great word for you to learn. It's not actually that complicated. Propitiation is literally anger satisfying or wrath bearing, it's temple and sacrifice language. Some translations translate the word sacrifice of atonement. Because the point here is that the blood of Jesus, his death, takes the punishment that is due to the sinner, bears God's judgment so that the sinner may be declared righteous, justified. This is Jesus standing in the place of sinners, taking their judgment, that they might receive payment for their sins in him and receive a right standing before God. Now remember what's going on here. This is the language of law courts and temples. Now, this is not God in a, in a rage at our sin, then, then taking his own son and sort of venting his anger on him to sort of appease himself, just to calm himself down a bit. Now, Jesus is not a kind of divine whipping boy like that. There's none of that here. Instead, this is the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, working together to satisfy the legal demands of righteous justice so that in Christ, sinners like us can be both guilty and declared righteous in him, not guilty, perfect. Go back to our speeding on Egbeth Road illustration. Remember that you've got in your hand the verdict of not guilty, you've already got it. And when you arrive at court, you wonder, you know, how can this be? I know I was caught by the speeding camera. I know that the camera always gives out perfect right, true justice to the camera, never lies. It never makes a mistake. It never lets anybody off. And when you arrive at the court and you're wondering how on earth this is going to be, the judge calls you to the bench and she says, listen, I want you to show you a picture of the car driving through those lights at 50 miles an hour. She shows you a picture of the car and you go, yeah, that's my car. I know that car. That's my car. But then you look at the picture of the person driving the car and you notice something remarkable, that it's the judge and it's not you shows you a picture of another car. It's her car. It's a nice car, right? It's the judge's car. Much better than yours. It is driving through the camera at exactly the right speed. You've never seen such sweet driving as this. Perfect speed, exactly the right part of the lane. And you can make out the picture of the driver of that car, too. So you glance down and look at it, and the picture of the driver is who? It's you. It's you. That's why you're not guilty, because you are not guilty, because the judge has taken your place so that you might take hers. And that's it here. We are guilty, God-hating sinners, the sinners of chapter 1 to 3. But Christ on the cross has stepped into our place, bearing our judgment so that freely in him, We might not be so much let off the rightness of judgment, but that we might receive judgment in Christ, that we might receive from him his rightness, so that legally, truly, and fully we are saved, not by our actions, but by an external event. So we sing things, don't we, like, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Till on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, propitiated. For every sin on him was laid, here in the death of Christ I live. This is the wonder of salvation. It is free to us, but it is fully paid for and fully legal in the death of Christ on the cross. God saves freely in Christ. Next. God says, freely in Christ, all who have faith in him. It's worth noticing these alls in verse 22 and 23. Look down at your Bibles again, verse 22. Let me read these words to you. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Paul's point here is really important. His point is that not everybody is automatically saved without exception. His point is not that Jesus died for everyone so that no one has any judgment to face. That's universalism, right? That's not the gospel. Rather, the point is that this offer of salvation is open to everybody. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter who you are this morning. It doesn't matter who you are when you're reading Romans. Doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, a Scouser or a Woollyback, a Northerner or a Southerner, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're black or white, whether you're male or female. It doesn't matter. Everyone, without distinction, invited to salvation in Christ. And they're all invited by the same route. What is that route? Well, look down. Verse Verse 22, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Verse 25, received by faith. Verse 26, the one who has. Faith in Jesus. Verse 28, by faith. Verse 30, by faith through faith. Just in case we were slow in getting it. Having all seen all that we've seen in the last few chapters, faith in Jesus is what? Well, it's the opposite of confidence in self. Verse 28 contrasts faith with works of the law. You, know, you either have faith or you either trust what you do. You're going to have faith in Jesus or you're going to trust what you've done. Verse 27 contrasts it to boasting. Are you going to have faith in Jesus or are you going to boast about what you've done and about who you are? Are you going to have confidence in Christ or are you going to have self-confidence? That's your choice. Confidence in Christ or self-confidence. This isn't deciding to be on Jesus' team. This isn't I'm going to start calling myself a Christian. This isn't I've decided to start coming to church as if some sort of allegiance to Jesus was enough. It's way more radical than that. It's a rejection of every shred of self confidence for confidence in Christ alone. Faith here is the, is the conduit through which Christ's work is received. It's the, the empty pipe through which his grace and mercy flows. It's the quivering hand that takes hold of the gift that he is offering. It's the empty stomach receiving the food. It's not contributing, it's just receiving. So sinners like us can be saved by God freely through the work of Christ on the cross as we receive it by faith. Which means, the uh, the passage is begging the question of us this morning, not are you good, not are you a nice person, not are you a church person, the question to ask yourself this morning is do you have faith in Jesus? do you have faith in Jesus? Sitting here this morning, have you swapped out all of your confidence in yourself for confidence in Christ? Sitting here this morning, can you say, I have no hope in myself, but full hope in Christ? Have you asked that the Lord might forgive you of your sin and save you freely through what Christ has done? Because if you have not done that, you are not a Christian, and you are facing the impending wrath and judgment of God's. There's no other route. And if you are a Christian, then this essentially is always our prayer, isn't it? You know, Lord, I, I know because of what Christ has done that I sit here and I'm in the right with you. And that is remarkable and glorious because my sin reminds me day by day by day by moment by moment that there is nothing that I could have done to earn that with you. And thank you, Lord, that even the sin that I committed this morning, yesterday, the day before, even that was laid on Christ. We started this morning with the the waves meme from COVID. And I said to you you this morning that our problem is that we get distracted from this big truth of God's impending judgment by all the little worries in our lives, all the little troubles that we face. And here at the end, we, we find that in God's goodness and his grace to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, he has freely saved all who have faith in him. Which means that with a bit of lowbrow Photoshop magic, our picture now looks a bit more like this, doesn't it? God saves freely in Christ all who have faith in him. And the point is this, then, can you imagine, right? Can you imagine for a moment God, the trying God, having done all that needed to be done to remove this impending threat of his judgment. Can you imagine for a moment that he's going to let you be washed away by the little wave? Can you imagine? Having taken away this ginormous tsunami of justice that you were all standing before, that I was standing before, can you imagine that having done that, he's going to say, well, yeah, okay, I removed my final judgment, but GCSE exams are going to wipe them out. Can you imagine that? Of course not. Can you imagine that the job that you didn't get, or the health that's failing, or you know, you've messed up and done something wrong and you're just anxious about it? Can you imagine that's going to sweep your way? Of course not. I'm going to give you a sneak preview of what Paul says later on in Romans. It's in Romans chapter eight, it's verse 31. You can turn to it if you want to, or you can just listen. This is brilliant. Paul writes this What should we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised, who is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or GCSEs or A-levels or joblessness or health crisis? As it is written, for your sake we have been killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's our lives. Knowing all these things. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, that kind of covers it, doesn't it? will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, our hearts tingle at the joy of knowing that even now, as you look at us, you see us as completely perfect. And that we can know that for sure because we're not knowing it because of anything we've done, but because of what Christ has done for us. And thank you that in knowing that, We can have the joy of knowing that we're not going to be swept away by anything because you've given us your son, the Lord Jesus, to die in our place. Lord, we love you. And we thank you even more for your love for us, totally undeserved, saving and freeing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Give us, we pray, just even a smidgen of an ability to grasp the delight that is ours in the Lord Jesus this morning, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, let's stand and sing and rejoice in our hearts at what Christ has done as we stand and sing Cornerstone.